Are you tired of hearing people complain about the world and ready to own the responsibility to make the world a better place? Hey, my name is Brent Simpson and welcome to this episode of Creating the Future. I believe that within each of us is a yearning to make the world a better place. So let's work together and make that desire a reality. My hope is that today's conversation inspires you as you endeavor to create the future. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to Creating the Future. Uh, super excited to be back sharing with you. If you did not know, I had a heart attack back in January, and uh, so I've been taking a little easy from the podcast since then, and um, I, I know it's been a while. I've gotten some texts from people and some messages saying, when are you putting up another podcast? Uh, we hopefully will get back into a routine. That's the plan now, uh, especially around some uh, uh, certain holidays that I think will be really good, and we've already reached out to some people that I think are going to make some really interesting discussions in into the future as we create the future together. Hey, today we probably are having what may be the most important podcast that you listen to this season uh, as we talk about, first of all, did Jesus rise from the dead as we prepare for Easter? Did he rise from the dead? And secondly, if he did, who cares? What does it matter that he rose from the dead? And so we're going to have an in-depth conversation about that with Dr. Joe Davis. Now, Joe Davis is the Southeastern uh, University professor of apologetics and works in philosophy. Uh, he has a PhD in apologetics from Westminster Theological Seminary. Uh, he is not just a great apologist, but a great man. In fact, I'll give uh, Dr. Davis a shout out here. Uh, the, the, the day I had my heart attack, uh, we needed somebody to step in and teach an apologetics group that I was leading. And he immediately stepped in and did an outstanding job and then refused to be paid, uh, which just shows his character and his heart. And uh, he's a good friend, an amazing man of God. And you're going to love this conversation. I do want to let you know, though, that August 20th and 21st of this year, we will be having our first Arise Apologetics Conference, and Joe Davis will be one of our speakers at that conference. So if you hear this today and think this is really intriguing, it's interesting stuff, I like to be a thinking Christian, uh, then you should definitely mark it on your calendars and plan to attend and be with us. We'll give out more details as that date approaches. Um, with that being said, uh, this is part one of our conversation talking about did Jesus rise from the dead and why does it matter? I think one of my big takeaways of Dr. Davis is talking about the empty tomb and how much we know about that empty tomb and why it's so important. So sit back, enjoy this conversation with me and Dr. Davis. All right. So I am super excited to have Dr. Joe Davis with us from Southeastern University, uh, the apologetics professor and my friend. And what an important topic to talk about today, Dr. Davis, uh, but to talk about Easter. <laughs> Yeah, it doesn't get any better than that. That's about as good as it gets. So, so let's just let's take a few steps in this journey. We're going to try to try to unpack for a second. Um, did Jesus really rise from the dead? And then, secondly, if he did, who cares? What, what does that even matter? Uh, right. But even before we get there, I just love starting with something a little bit more fun. So uh, Richard Dawkins, as we were just discussing before we went live, has a lot of amazing quotes. He's often outside of his genre for the things he talks about, but he's got uh, he's a wordsmith. And so he's got some great quotes. Here's one of them. And I'd love for you to respond to this. We should spend as much time studying serious theology as we devote to studying serious fairies and serious unicorns. <laughs> How would you respond <laughs> to that, Dr. Davis? <laughs> <laughs> it is just so funny. He just wants to dismiss it all because right. he doesn't believe in it. Right. And uh, it, 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 he just has so many things that he not only says incorrectly, but his, his 
whole uh, viewpoint is so dismissive. It's, it's almost as if we don't have some of the greatest thinkers in the right. entire history of thought who are Christians. Right. And so we've got quite a few people who are kind of bright uh, yeah. over the last 2000 years and particularly the area of philosophy mm -hmm. where a lot of people are like, oh my golly, that's nothing but atheists. No, uh, uh, we have a lot of very, very smart people uh, who down through the ages have believed in God. And, you know, it isn't like Richard Dawkins is finding anything new. Uh, all of his comments are the same regurgitated stuff yeah. that people have been saying against Christianity for years. Mm -hmm. And so uh, the amazing part is that Richard thinks he's has some new revelation here. I mean, you know, it's just <laughs> like, I think you actually just need to take a history lesson. <laughs> right, right. No, I'm, yeah. I'm a hundred percent with you. I think it's very dismissive and honestly, it's kind of rude and just uh, uneducated to make those kind of statements that he makes. Uh, that yeah. people love them because they they tweet well and people love to retweet it and sure. they love to, to, to applaud sure. it. Uh, but the yeah. truth is, uh, you know, serious thinkers for two thousand years have been Christians, whether philosophers or or scientists and biologists for that matter, which is what he would be. Um, Absolutely, you no. Know, and so, uh, uh, serious thinkers and and really even science gets its roots from Christianity, trying to understand God even further. Uh, so his whole genre of study comes from the origins of Christianity. So anyway, yeah. yeah. Good point. Good point. I like to say it this way. In order to study at all, one must presuppose an ordered universe with right. cosmological constants that mm. are a given and do not change. Yeah. And uh, I think that uh, to just assume a universe that's orderly and uh, say, well, gosh, that's just the way it is, is quite naive. Or to put it another way, I like to ask when I enter a place to speak, how did all these chairs get here? And then someone says someone put them there. And I just generally say, no, they fell out of outer space in perfect alignment. That's how they got here. <laughs> well, who put so, them in outer space then? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So, so let's transition because we could talk for hours on apologetics alone and our listeners would probably love it too because most people love this subject. But let's transition. Awesome. This is Easter weekend coming up. Uh, literally around the world, there are billions of people who will be worshiping, which is always a a humbling thing for all of us in our local churches to realize, I mean, it happens every Sunday, but especially Easter Sunday around the world, you know, starting with different time zones, there's this, there's this wave of worship. It's almost like a wave at a stadium that goes around There's a wave of worship that happens all around the globe that we get to be a part of. Uh, so let's just look first of all, and ask the question, did Jesus actually rise from the dead? Cause that, I mean, that's pretty unbelievable. Um, that's pretty ridiculous to believe. Why would somebody actually believe that? Yet at the same time, yeah, I would say question. it's got to be our foundation of Christianity. So, so why would somebody believe that? It absolutely is our foundation, and we stand upon that. And Paul says, if Christ be not raised, you are still in your sins. Right. And so we are going to focus on that because uh, that is uh, the main mission. I won't say the only one, but the main mission of Jesus is coming. He came to be a sacrifice for us. And uh, as Isaiah 53 says, uh, on him lies the punishment that brings us peace. And so when we're talking about the resurrection, uh, all of life, Jesus's life is moving to that point. Even the disciples don't understand it. They don't get it. Uh, when Jesus is coming into Jerusalem on a donkey, uh, they're shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, yeah, thinking he's the liberator uh, yeah. from the Roman uh, tyranny. 
-hmm. and they uh, see him riding on a donkey, which is quoted in Zechariah that you're going to see uh, your king riding on a donkey, and it is a messianic prophecy. Of course, this goes all the way back to Saul, uh, who went looking for donkeys and found a kingdom. And so the idea is this is mm -hmm. that uh, the Messiah will come in on a donkey because this yeah. is how uh, the uh, first anointing started. Well, uh, we have people like David Hume, again, a very bright fellow, but makes a big mistake. And he says, you know, uh, well, we just have to go with the simplest explanation. The simplest explanation is that human beings don't rise from the dead. Right. That's <laughs> okay. a statement, right? Human beings don't rise from the dead. Yeah. And so that's, that's just the way it is. Well, our first comment is Jesus never said he was just a human being. Right. Okay. Now, is he a human being? Absolutely. He's a human mm -hmm. being. That's what's going to make the cross work. Galatians 4.4 4 says, born of a woman, born under the law. In other words, he's got to be human. And here's an important point that I think a lot of people miss. He can't cheat. And, and when he's going through life as a human, at any moment, he can opt out or he can overrule his humanity with his divinity. He decides not to. And this is what the temptation in Luke 4 is all about. When Satan says, you can turn this stone into bread. And Jesus' response is, man shall not live by bread alone. Right. And so he's making a very definitive point. I'm a man. I'm going through this as a man. And the reason is I'm going to have to fulfill the law or God's moral code as a human being. I, I'm not going to be able to cheat. Another way to say it is, and I like to say it this way. If I said to everybody, hey, look, I'll give everybody $100 who can, who can race me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come out this Sunday and we'll get in the parking lot. And if you can beat me, I'll give you $100. What I'll fail to realize is that I'm showing up in a Corvette. <laughs> <laughs> so if everybody shows up in their little shorts and their tennis shoes, you know, I'm just going to blow you out of water. Well, the first thing everybody will say would be you cheated. Mm -hmm. and, and, and I'm going to say, well, yeah, so, okay. But the point is no one's going to accept that as being a legitimate race unless we're all doing it the same way. Right. So this is how it is with Christ. He's not going to be able to cheat. He's going to have to go through life as a human. And what's maybe very surprising is in Luke 4, verse 1, after the baptism, it says, and the Holy Spirit led him into the wilderness. Well, if you're God, why do you need to be led at all? Mm -hmm. And the answer is he's trying to teach us how to do this thing called life. Now, wow. he's human. There's no question about it. And we hear and see very human things. When Jesus is in Gethsemane, Father, let this cup pass from my hand. Mm -hmm. Which if you think about it, it's kind of amazing because he knows the whole time how this is going to happen, how this is going to work. He even yeah. prophesies, this is what's going to happen. At Caesarea Philippi, he tells the disciples, look, I'm going to go down to Jerusalem and I'm going to suffer and die. To which, of course, Peter says, no, 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 you don't understand. <laughs> and sort of comical, you know, oh, okay, right. But but he, he's knowing all the time. But in, in Gethsemane, he's praying so fervently that droplets of blood are separating on his forehead. And we know that this is a result of stress that it mixes, uh, sweat mixes with blood. And, and the Bible even says that he says, my soul is sorrowful to the point of death. And so, you know, he, he's constantly having these things called emotions. Right which I know many of us would like to dispense with altogether. We just get rid of them, you know, <laughs> right. but he does have them because he's a human mm -hmm. and yet he's also God. Yeah. Now Hume makes a mistake and it's called Occam's razor. 
Right. And in Occam's razor, you always call the law of persimony, meaning you always take the easiest solution. Mm -hmm. But the problem with that is easy is a presupposition based upon what you believe. And this is a perfect example. Hume does not believe that, in fact, he's God. Mm -hmm. Therefore, the simplest explanation is that humans don't rise from the dead. Right. Now, let's jump back to our presupposition. Our presupposition is that Jesus says he's God. Right. <laughs> he says it numerous times before Abraham was, I am. He forgives sins. Who can forgive sins? And Jesus says, what's easier? Say your sins are forgiven or stand, take your mat and walk. He, he has no question as to who he is. As a matter of fact, he'll constantly say, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. In my father's house are many mansions. Yeah. If it were not so, I'd tell you. And so he's talking about what he knows because he is, in fact, God. Now, fast forward. The creator of the box cannot be bound by the box. And okay. what does that mean? It is illogical to say that God could be bound by anything finite. It would not make sense to say that a God that creates would be limited by his creation. Mm -hmm. To put it another way, if in fact I create some artwork, it wouldn't make any sense at all that now the artwork controls me. You know, mm -hmm. Just imagine like a picture behind right. me and it's controlling me. That makes no sense. Mm -hmm. No one could believe that. This is the same analogy. God's artwork is humanity, our world, our universe. It is illogical that in fact the creator of the box would be bound by the box. It is illogical that that which is infinite would be bound by the finite. And mm -hmm. it doesn't mean that God can't step into our time. It's just he's not limited by our time. Right. Right. And that is a tremendous difference. And there here, Hume is almost doing a sleight of hand. He's almost trying to pretend that we don't know that Jesus is God and he's not starting there. Where you start in an argument will always determine where you end. Right. And so Hume starts with, he's not God. All right, we're not starting there. We're saying he is. We yeah. think he is. And as a result of that, to say, is it logical that Jesus would rise from the dead? Well, of course, it's, it's, it's eminently logical. Of course, it's mm -hmm. logical. Because if he's who he says he is, then it's not a problem. Mm -hmm. Not a right. problem at all. Wasn't that Second point. Go ahead. Isn't that kind of the point with Hume's argument that humans don't rise from the dead? The whole point is he's not human. That's why he rose from the dead. I mean, the yeah. whole point is is lost in that. So, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, like, I'm a big I, Occam's razor is a good thing. Uh, it's just you have to start with the right presuppositions. So, yeah, correct. First part for, for, for a minute. I just want to throw I want to lob some questions at you and let Go you ahead. respond to him um, before we before we concede that he rose from the dead. Right. So obviously, <laughs> sure. all right, now we said, well, he's not human, um, but let's throw some things out there for you. Um, in the room you were just in before we had some Internet problems, you had a big fish on your wall. Why is this different than a big fish story? How do we know this story just didn't grow over time that, you know, in the beginning, you know, something little happened and then it just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Yeah, so now we have a resurrection account 300 years later. Yeah. Yeah. And, and uh, lots of good stuff on that. First, one of the most interesting things is the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. Right. It is specifically named. And this is a big deal. Number one, there are not any, bodies or bones in this tomb. It's a new tomb, specifically stated as a new tomb. Why is that important? Well, you know very well, if you have even the slightest bone in that tomb, everybody's going to say, how did you know you got the right guy? 
So having a new tomb probably didn't mean anything to them back in Jesus's day, but oh my goodness, is it a big deal today? And along those lines, what probably most people don't realize is Jesus was a very popular name. It didn't like they had 37,000 names. They actually had just a few names that they kept using. For example, Mary is just like everybody's Mary. And Jesus or Yeshua or Joshua, very, very popular name. And so very easy for someone to get confused or to say, oh, well, they had other bones in there. Maybe they got it wrong. Thanks be to God that it's a new tomb because we there would be no way we'd ever hear the end of that. Now, what's the big deal with Joseph of Arimathea besides the fact that it's a new tomb? The fact that the Bible names, it means one of two things. Number one, either you know who we're talking about mm-hmm. and it's not a mystery as to where this is. For example, if I said, let's go to Pastor Brent's house, that means that you know who Pastor Brent is. Mm-hmm. And you know the location. Right. Otherwise, the statement is, does not help you at all. It doesn't make any sense. And so to name the tomb, the tomb, Joseph of Arimathea, aside from the fact it fulfills the scripture in Isaiah 53, this says he'll be buried with the rich. It's a rich man's tomb. It's very important because it tells us that people immediately knew where the tomb was. Mm-hmm. And that's a big deal. Because we got an empty tomb. And so bottom line is, there isn't any question. Mm -hmm. And here's the interesting point, Pastor Brent. No one has ever questioned that. See, this is the interesting point. No one has ever questioned in all of history that they got the tomb wrong. We know we got it right. It's named. And so to write this in the Gospels, you are writing to people who would, in fact, know what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. To say... Pastor Brent's house doesn't work if you don't know who Pastor Brent is. So to talk about your house, that means it's written to people who at the time would know where that is and what that is. And what does that mean? It has already become a pilgrimage site at the time of the writing. And we're talking almost immediately. Now, by the way, we don't need to even speculate about that. Because what we know is the Romans helped us. They didn't mean to, but they helped us <laughs> a great deal. And because what was occurring in Israel was people were beginning to make these places a pilgrimage site. Which places? Well, there were five locations that the Romans, to dissuade people from going to the site, built temples over them to stop them. Right. They built one in Bethlehem. And the most famous one was built in Jerusalem, and a temple to Aphrodite was built over it just basically to to throw it in Christians' face. They were just going to, you know, just really make it objectionable for Christians to go to this place. Of course, it didn't work. Mm -hmm. Didn't work at all. And what occurs is this temple for Aphrodite is built by Hadrian, but what occurs is as soon as uh, Christianity comes into uh, power under, uh, well, really, Helena leads the way, but uh, Constantine, the Roman Empire, she builds a church and she knows where it is because they build a Roman temple over it. Right. Now, excavations reveal the Roman temple and a tomb underneath this place that they built a Roman temple. So Mm -hmm. by golly, pastor, we got it. We know where he was buried. And 
furthermore, that this location was absolutely known to the people. And the important thing is no one back then ever questioned that the body was in the tomb. So what we got, just to bring us up to speed here, is we got an empty tomb without question. Mm -hmm. And now the only question is, where's the body? Yeah. So if, so if I were to push back on that, though, I would say uh, even as a Christian, Christianity didn't happen because there was an empty tomb. In fact, when they went to the empty tomb, they were confused on why the tomb was empty. Uh, Mary didn't run back going, going, Jesus is resurrected. She ran back going, what happened to the body? Somebody stole the body. That was her immediate response, which apologetically I think is beautiful because it shows that she's not just some uh, you know, uneducated spiritual person that just believes everything. She's just like we would be, you know, what happened to the body? Um, and, and so isn't it true that from the earliest uh, creeds and in, in first Corinthians and such uh, that come very early that you do have these stories of the risen Lord, including, you know, somebody like the apostle Paul, who is now a, a, not even a skeptic, but a hater of all things Christian who encounters according to his own words that are very reliable and very early on that encounters um, the risen Christ that seems to change his life as well. So it's really the, I, I think one of the things that I look to uh, pastor is uh, uh, that these are not stories of heroes. Right. Okay. That's good. And if you were writing your own story, you would certainly edit out the parts that make you look stupid, or at least right. I would. Right. right. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know? And, and what does it look like? I mean, the reality is, it looks like none of them believe. And right. I like to say that, in fact, the reality is 1.5 of the disciples believed. Yeah. And when I get the 1.5, what I mean is when the disciples hear the news, hey, he's risen. Okay. Peter runs to the tomb mm -hmm. and he believes, I think, or wants to. And he runs and he runs into the tomb. By the way, if you run into a tomb and the dead man's there, you're defiled. Mm. And so he doesn't care. Yeah. He wants, he's, he's a believer or he wants to be. Yeah. But I say the point five because John runs with him. And so <laughs> yeah. John is, <laughs> John is being a very good Jew. Yeah. <laughs> he's, I, I wonder, I wish, I, I wish we had more information because I wonder if John goes, Hey, you go in first and tell me what's there <laughs> because he doesn't go in. Right. He doesn't go in until after Peter goes. Mm -hmm. And so now after he doesn't see the body, now it's beginning to dawn on him. So here's, here's the point that you're making and I'm agreeing with. The stories reveal that they don't believe it. Yeah. And it's too hard to believe. Mm -hmm. And they look like the most unspiritual persons because God, Jesus has told them time and time again, this is going to happen. Yeah, the story of Jonah. Look, like I'm, uh, Jonah was in the belly of the whale, I'm going to be in the earth for three days and then, and then I'm going to rise. Well, they're not believing it. He's told them they don't believe it. Right. And even Thomas, of course, when Jesus appears to him, he's very curt with him. And in the Greek, it's a little more clear. He says to him, Thomas, in the mood of command. And when I first read this in the Greek, I was shocked. In the mood of command, put your finger in my hand. This wow. is not a, please, would you do this? This is a command. Put your hand in my side. And then he says to him, stop. And it's in the aorist tense, which means stop right now. Stop your unbelieving and become believing. Mm. And then he says, as if to throw salt on an open wound, blessed are those who believe without seeing. As if to say to Thomas, unlike you, <laughs> you're not one of them. 
Yeah. So my, my point, Pastor, in this is, my golly, if they were going to make up a story, you'd look like you'd make it up so you don't look like a bunch of unbelieving fools. Mm-hmm. And the reality is, even the appearance to the women first goes yeah. completely against the culture mm-hmm. because women's testimony is not accepted in a court of law. And in fact, you even read it in the scriptures. The scriptures say they thought them to be mad mm-hmm. and they're not believing it. Oh, my right. golly, you know, what in the world's wrong with them? And so the reality is, of course, the women are right. Mm-hmm. Jesus is risen. And so in every instance that we have, except possibly Peter, they're asking, where have you put the body? Right. They're not getting it. They don't right. believe until it's until Jesus reveals himself. And so right. the story itself has credibility because it's not airbrushed. Mm-hmm. No, I completely agree. Uh, and even a lot of the other objections that end up being formed, things like, you know, they stole the body or somebody else stole the body, all kind of get answered in that because they it wasn't a missing body that was the issue. It wasn't just the tomb. That's a key factor in it, but there's so much more. And it's the resurrected Jesus when they see him that they suddenly the light bulbs go off and they start to realize what's happening. Uh, let me ask you this one uh, quickly. This is another one that I know is more common. Uh, Jesus didn't die. He just swooned, right? So he went into the tomb, yeah, 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 passed yeah, out, whatever. Yeah, he swooned. wasn't dead. He was just, just you know, kind of unconscious and there. came back away. Let me, let me go moment. back just for one second to the body. Okay. An important point that I don't hear talked about enough is the Romans were very good at torture. And here's what I mean. Yeah. It'll come into play in your question, but before we get to that, if the disciples knew where the body was, it would not have been hard to get that information. Here's what most people don't know about torture. I'm pretty much an expert on it because I have long sermons. <laughs> <laughs> your sermons are great. I've heard a few of them. They're, they're <laughs> you're, mo- you're most guy. You're most guy <laughs> anyway, anyway here's, here's what we know about Guantanamo Bay. Down at Guantanamo Bay, there was a debate about torture. It was interesting because you heard different presidential candidates say, we're going to shut down Guantanamo Bay. Well, it's still going. There's a reason it's still going. And what most people don't know about torture is it isn't that you don't get information. What's hard is you get too much. Hmm. In other words, are people going to talk if you're torturing? They absolutely are going to talk. Yeah. The problem with torture is they're going to say things. They'll say anything to stop the torture. Right. And so the issue isn't, can you get information? It's how you, how do you validate the information you got? Mm-hmm. And so I think what most people don't know about the Romans is we're talking about experts at torture who don't care a whit about yeah. human life or right. value. Right. And so they're good at it. They're really good. They perfected the art of crucifixion, actually. Crucifixion was around before the Romans. The Romans just said, let's make it better. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so these are really good at people at torture. Now, why is this important? If, in fact, you have the idea that you're going to have a Messiah rise from the dead, wouldn't you want to protect yourself from a revolution? And furthermore, now if you've got a risen revolutionary, someone who's a Messiah figure, aren't you? going to make sure that you're going to stop this quick. Now, more history, if I may. There is a rebellion called the Third Jewish Rebellion by Bar Kaba. 
And he's a messianic figure. And one of the rabbis, Rabbi Akina, uh, says something similar to he's the Messiah. They aren't the exact words, but basically that's the idea. And so what happens? This is very important. The Romans are concerned about the idea that Messiahs rise from the dead to the degree that they put soldiers outside of Barkaba's mm. tomb mm. to make sure he doesn't rise. Mm-hmm. This is perfectly consistent with what happened with Jesus. They right. put guards to make sure. Now, here's what makes it more interesting, talking about torture. Romans had a great way of dealing with prisoners escaping. And we find it in the scripture in Acts 16, where Paul and Silas are in jail. When the jail is open, the Philippian jailer draws his sword. He's about ready to kill himself. Why? Because he knew how it worked. You lose a prisoner, you pay with your life. Right. There you go. It's simple. This is what we call motivation. (laughs) They're highly motivated to make sure that no one's getting out. This is the scenario with Jesus's body in the tomb. You got two guards there to make sure that we don't have any mishaps and nobody steals the body because we are all aware of how this will work if in fact it occurs. Well, here's the thing, it did occur. They had the guards and we got a risen savior. Right. Now, now to the crucifixion. Well, Jesus didn't really die Bottom line is he just went into a coma and he awoke. Well, if he awoke, of course, you can still get on that body trail just by going to the torture route and getting people to confess. However, let's deal with the crucifixion itself. First, people need to know that the crucifixion is short. It is extremely short. Mm -hmm. doesn't mean that Jesus didn't suffer. The reality is he's probably psychologically, spiritually, and biologically beaten. And what I mean by that is when Jesus is beaten prior to going to the cross, your executioner could determine how much he wants to beat you. Mm -hmm. And what occurs is that Jesus is evidently beaten very badly. How do we know this? Because he can't carry his cross all the way to the place of crucifixion. Mm -hmm. And what occurs is the Romans must get somebody, Simon, to carry his cross Why? Because he can't make it. What's going on in this scene? What's going on is that basically the Romans are afraid that he's going to die before he gets there. The beating evidently was pretty severe. Now, to be sure, I'm going to say it's not just the physical. He's carrying the weight of the world on his shoulders, quite literally. But they want to make sure he actually makes it so that they can mock him and make a, a PR campaign. Now, this is very important for the question. The PR campaign is everything for Rome. They don't care about people dying. They kill people all the time. Mm -hmm. What's important is the PR campaign. And particularly at Passover, they are lining the streets with crosses. And Josephus, the historian, first year entry historian, says the way into Jerusalem was lined with crosses. Why? They're trying to get across the message. You mess with us, we're going to kill you. Yeah. Now, the crucifixion could take up the two or three days. And frankly, they didn't care if you died and you hung on that cross and birds ate you. Mm-hmm. They were more than happy for you to see that. Yeah. So for Jesus to die in a very short period of time, here's what that means. There isn't any question he's dead. Yeah. You see what I'm saying? In other words, if it's is a it, PR campaign and they it, have over his head, King of the Jews, they're right. trying to make a statement. Right. Look, 
here's your, here's what you say is your Messiah. Didn't work for him, did it? Right. And so they don't want to take him down early. So to take him down means that in fact, they're convinced he's dead. Right. No question about it. Plus that's why they, you know, thrust the spear up through his side. I mean, because the it's spear through so the quickly, side is directly, we got to make sure he's actually dead. Go ahead. Now I'm just saying they had to run the spear up his side because he died so quickly. They had to make sure that he was actually dead. That wasn't normal. And, and like to your point, I mean, these are people that are export experts at torture uh, slash death. They, they know death. You know, it's a, what's the old quote? I've walked so many battlefields. I can feel death uh, by, uh, yeah. I think it's Napoleon, I believe. Well, it's, it's very important. And here's the other point too. It's very clear what would happen. If Jesus gets down off that cross early and he comes back and he's alive, the person who's in charge of the execution pays with his own life. Right. And so that's why that spear is going into the side. Mm-hmm. He looks dead. <clears throat> everything's pointing to him being dead. But yeah. that executioner isn't taking a chance. Why? Because it's his life. He's not taking a chance. And so he sticks that spear in the side to make sure that it didn't him. Right. And so that's why there's no question at all. And of course, we've had lots of medical doctors testify that the sack around the heart was pierced. Right. And the liquid that comes out is a milky uh, liquid that surrounds the heart. And many, many have said, there's no question, this is uh, that sac that has that right around the heart. His heart is pierced. And so you pierce the heart, they're gone. So really little question about that. Well, isn't it true, too, that let's, let's just say that he really didn't die and he swooned and whatever, even even beyond all the evidence, which uh, what's the old uh, Frank Turek, Norman Geisler thing? It takes more faith to be an atheist. It takes more faith not to believe this. But even if he did uh, and he walks up to the disciples afterwards, they're not claiming a resurrection. They're trying to get him to a doctor. They're they're they might be happy that he's alive, but it's by no 100 percent. 100 percent. Victorious, exciting, yay! You know he's resurrected from the dead. It's nothing like that. It's a no, no. You're you're one hundred percent right. It doesn't, it doesn't start Christianity. Yeah. Another aspect of this is uh, to go off the fish. Uh, who Jesus picks to tell his story, and he didn't pick wise and clever people. He picked fishermen. Mm-hmm. And uh, having worked on a fish boat, uh, Brent, uh, I got a nickname for going through a whole year of college. My nickname when I worked on the fish boat was Aristotle, because you had to be really smart to make it through a whole year of college. <laughs> Who knows what they call me now? <laughs> but you had to be like really smart. And so, uh, you know, I think he purposely did that because uh, this is quite unbelievable that these people are going to change the world. And, and so mm-hmm. let's just start right there. How, why would we believe that Jesus rose from that? Here's a quick answer, because never in all of history has uh, one life changed the world as much as this life. Right. And it's not as just as teaching. We've had lots of wise people come down the pike. You know, you got Confucius, you got all these different, okay, all right, great, that's wonderful. Nobody would have ever heard of Jesus. Nobody would have cared, except that when the disciples see him, they're convinced he's risen from the dead. Mm-hmm. Somebody asked me just recently, why is he in the ground for three days? And here's the answer, to make sure he's good and dead. Right. In other words, we right. don't want to, Truthfully, if he'd arose in three hours or five hours, people go, oh, he's not really dead. We're talking three days. There isn't any question how that's working. Mm-hmm. And so here, these disciples, they don't believe it at first. And something happens that changes them that they are going to give up their lives. Now, some have said, well, you know, fanatics will believe anything. And so look, we got 9-11 fanatics blowing up buildings. You know, so what's the difference? 
Here's the difference. The 9-11 fanatics died for an idea, yeah. something that they believed to be true. Mm -hmm. These disciples are not dying just for an idea. They are dying for what they saw, right. what they felt with their hands. And they're saying, this isn't just an idea. I have seen it. I have felt it. There's no question in my mind. And bottom line is you can torture me as what you want. Nothing will change what I saw. And right. that belief was so firm in them that truthfully, it is not too much to say they changed the world. They absolutely changed the world. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I think of uh, Sean McDowell, who did his doctoral dissertation in apologetics on the martyrdom of the disciples. And I think he came back, if I remember correctly, with three, maybe four that are absolutely beyond a doubt that were martyred for it, which is enough by itself. But then you have the historical belief that basically all of them were martyred except for John. Um, but I would take it a step in a different direction. And I'm, I'm sure you would agree with this. I'd love to hear your thoughts that it wasn't just the martyrdom at the point when they start accepting Christianity, they're excommunicated from the excommunicated from the temple and the local synagogue and all of their family. And there was no uh, celebrity status for these people. I mean, now we have St. Peter's hospital everywhere and, and, you know, his title and, and different disciples that we celebrate. But at that point it was the opposite. You were losing everything to follow this belief that Jesus had risen from the dead. I hope you enjoyed this conversation today, and I especially hope it added value to you. If you enjoyed it, would you do me a favor and give us a five-star rating on your podcast provider? It really helps to get the word out. And of course, if you share this content with your friends, that would be great too. And until next time, I hope you continue creating a better future. I look forward to being with you again soon.